The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. I'm Vinnie Politan with another audio edition of the Court TV original true crime series, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. This week's episode tells the story of millionaire developer Ronald Rudin, a fixture in old Las Vegas who made his fortune as corporations began to transform shady mob-owned casinos into monuments of excess. While Rudin was successful in his professional life, when it came to love, he was a bad bet having been married four times, his last wife being Margaret Rudin. When his body turned up near Lake Mojave, police had to figure out who wanted him dead the most, his enemies or his friends. Featuring interviews with his widow, Margaret Rudin, defense attorney Tom Patero, and Clark County Judge Joseph Bonaventure, this is Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall, Black Widow. This is the Court TV Podcast. When Ron Rudin first disappeared, everyone knew something was wrong and they suspected foul play. They found his Cadillac parked in a, a topless strip joint. A burned out chest, feet away, a human skull. Someone had to really dislike Ron in order to shoot him four times. He had enemies and he had an arsenal at home. He said to me, I'm gonna take the deal. And so that was $8 million. Maybe Ron Rudin was murdered by someone who didn't want that transaction to take place. Ron Rudin was a well-known fixture in old Las Vegas. He made his fortune buying and selling real estate just as major corporations transformed the shady mob-owned casinos into massive monuments to excess. Although Ron was successful in his professional life, when it came to love, he was a bad bet, having been married four times. But as luck would have it, he met a beautiful Southern belle named Margaret and decided to play the odds one more time. Ron Rudin came out to Las Vegas to make a fortune in real estate, and he did that. He was very driven. Las Vegas was a different animal then. The mob ran the town. The corporations hadn't come in yet. And uh, he, he did well. He did very well. Ron was an interesting man. He was a pioneer, so to speak, in, in Las Vegas. He, he was very well known in Las Vegas as a, a, a realtor. Ron Rudin was a cutthroat businessman. He had made millions in the Las Vegas real estate market. He was investing in real estate when the boom started in Las Vegas. He was really kind of a sleazy businessman. He would buy and sell houses, and then he would foreclose on, like he would sell you a house and carry the paper, and then as you missed a payment, man, he was there to take it back. So he had a lot of enemies that way. He was not an above-board business person. He was handsome by most people's standards, and he was a womanizer. He loved the love game. Margaret didn't come into the picture till, you know, a decade later or so. And she came in very quietly. Margaret Rudin is a very beautiful uh, woman, very well kept. 
it was part of her persona back then. I mean, anyone who saw Margaret would just automatically be, wow, what an elegant woman. She married, had a couple of kids. Uh, that marriage didn't work out. And then she married several other times. And then for a fresh start, you know, she came out to Las Vegas. Margaret Rudin met Ron at a church, at a Christian church, and they hit it off. He came over immediately after the service, and he said, how would you like to go to the Las Vegas Country Club with me for lunch? Which was a way of bragging, you know, because it's a private club. I said, no, I'm not going, I'm not interested. Anyway, he said, I'll fix that, and he went over and got the minister. And he said, would you tell her I'm okay, that I'm a member here? And the minister said to me, uh, you've got my blessings. She got the good Ron version. He wooed her, he courted her. She had the Cinderella syndrome. She thought she had found her Prince Charming. My sister knew because she was in uh, real estate here. And she said, Margaret, I've heard some bad things about him. And I said, well, I'm not gonna marry him. Six weeks later, I married him. Well, pretty soon after they married, after he got the I do's and the papers signed, she realized he had a drinking problem. The good Ron would turn into the bad Ron. We had an up and down marriage at first, but the longer I was married to him, the more I knew him. He had a really good side. He helped a lot of people. He usually wanted something in return, but he had a good heart. Ron Rudin had a lot of enemies in town because uh, you know, you buy up land, and some other person wants to land, and uh, there could be a lot of shop deals made. And One of the things that hovered over Ron Rudin his entire business career was rumors of connections to the mafia. He, like a lot of business people in Las Vegas, dealt with the mafia and had connections to people who you and I might not have connections to. Another thing about Ron Rudin was he was a gun nut. He was consumed with guns. He had enemies, and he had an arsenal at home. Why would your average guy need a 1,000 guns at home? Now, he was a gun dealer, but come on. You're going to keep a 1,000 guns at home in a private collection? Why you need all that firepower? He was heavily invested in Lee Canyon, which is a very gorgeous property in the area of Mount Charleston. That's about eh, 45, 50 minutes northwest of Las Vegas. He sold it to a, a company called Olympia down in, I think, in Phoenix. And he said to me, when they give me $40,000 an acre, I'm going to take the deal. And they did. And so that was $8 million. And he disappeared on Monday morning. When I got home, he wasn't there. He was supposed to have signed a deal with Olympia on Wednesday. The proposed transfer of land and exchange of money never happened after Ron Rudin disappeared. So that really fueled speculation that maybe Ron Rudin was murdered by someone who didn't want that transaction to take place. When Las Vegas businessman Ron Rudin went missing on December 20th, 1994, there was plenty of speculation to go around. 
There were a lot of rumors that Ron had more than a few enemies. As news of his disappearance spread, locals wondered if it could be related to Ron's business dealings or maybe even his alleged mob ties. But without any actual evidence of foul play, Ron's absence was a total mystery. When Ron Rudin first disappeared, everyone knew something was wrong and they suspected foul play. The reason for this is Ron Rudin was a very meticulous businessman, hands-on guy, had to be involved in everything. And the fact that he didn't show up for work caused a lot of concern for people. Margaret Rudin was getting to be a suspect because she didn't report her husband missing right away. Margaret had to be told by friends, hey, you know where uh, Ron is? Did you report it? And she says, no, I didn't report it. And that was suspicious to the police officers. We reported him on the 20th. I had called, and I talked to a man. I wish I'd have got his name, but I didn't, on the morning that he didn't come back at Metro. And he said, oh, men do that all the time. Men do that. We don't even check them out until they're 48 hours. You know? He said, call me back after 48 hours. I think she was kind of low-hanging fruit for, for Metro detectives who didn't want to really dig into this case because I think to really solve this case at the time, it was going to take a lot of work. And Margaret was there. Maybe she didn't react the way they thought she should have reacted, you know, when he was gone. Now, because he was very successful and he was a shrewd businessman, he had this directive. It says, in the event that I die under any suspicious circumstances, it is to totally be investigated. And the people uh, who are closest to me, such as the trustees and Margaret, are to be investigated. Well, immediately, the trustees shut Margaret down. They left her with nothing. Within 10 days, after Ron disappeared, they shut off all bank accounts, all credit cards, uh, told me they were going to repossess the car. They cut, shut off all utilities that had been paid through the business. They even shut off newspapers. When Ron Rudin disappeared, it went for a period of months where no one really knew what happened to him. They found his uh, Cadillac. He always had a black Cadillac. They found his Cadillac parked in a, um, a topless strip joint. And they found his car at the Crazy Horse 2 Saloon, which was a mobbed-up joint. And when they found the car there, there was like four sets of footprints in there. And they didn't know why that was, so they had no idea why his car was parked there. The investigation went on for months with very few developments until a hiker found human remains in a burned-out chest, a trunk that was near Lake Mojave. When the police examined that crime scene, they found a bracelet in diamonds that said Ron. The remains were those of Ron Rudin. A forensic examination of the remains found that he had been shot in the head at close range. When I look at it, and the way they found the skull, and the way they found the fire, and the way they found the evidence out there, to me, that's as staged as it could be. That had mob written all over it. They were sending a signal. The police came to my door, and my heart sank because I knew. And they said, we found your husband dead. He'd been shot. They did tell me he'd been shot, but they didn't tell me he'd been burned. 
Nelson's Landing, a remote area 40 miles from Las Vegas near Lake Mojave. A burned out chest, feet away, a human skull, and another clue, a distinct custom-made bracelet spelling out R-O-N. Dental records would confirm it was the remains of Ron Rudin. They make a big deal about the fact when they went to her house to notify her that they found Ron's body, that she didn't seem like the grieving widow. Well, hell, by that time, he'd been gone for almost six weeks, and no one had been using his credit cards or his money or anything. They found his car at the mobbed-up strip club over there. She didn't think he was coming home. Augustine Lovato was a handyman who occasionally worked for Margaret Rudin, and he went to the authorities and told this incredible story that Margaret had hired him to dispose of some very valuable evidence in her bedroom, that there was a mattress that was covered in blood, carpet, and that there was also, he told this bizarre account of actually blood bubbling in a bathtub. This was two weeks after the seasoned Metro detectives came in, the missing persons guys had got on their hands and knees and looked under the bed. They didn't see any big stains. They didn't see flecks of blood on the ceilings or anything. And a remarkable sort of thing, some skin divers apparently out at Lake Mead had found a weapon uh, out there in the lake, and they brought it in, and, and it was apparently turned into the police. And lo and behold, they're claiming it was a match to Ron Rudin's uh, weapon that had been reported, I believe, stolen in the past. It wasn't too long after that that she took off. She knew she wasn't going to get any money. Why stick around? They hadn't indicted her, you know, so she left. OK, I didn't flee. I left because my attorney took all the money, all the money that I had got from the estate. I decided I'm leaving. I can't take this place. I can't take all the underhanded, dirty things that are going on. They indicted her, you know, after the fact that she was gone. And then the big manhunt happened. There was a period of time where she was staying in a seedy hotel down in Arizona. She had to reinvent herself to stay ahead of the cops. It would take authorities in Clark County, Nevada, more than two years to obtain an indictment in the murder of Las Vegas businessman Ron Rudin. That indictment was against his fifth wife, Margaret. The only problem is that Margaret had left Las Vegas more than a year before. What ensued was a nationwide manhunt to find her. When the uh, grand jury proceedings were going on, people talked about Margaret ran out of town. She didn't run out of town for like two and a half years. And when she left town, she wasn't indicted. She could do whatever she wanted. There was a period of time where she was staying in a kind of seedy hotel down in Arizona in the Phoenix area. And this case received a lot of publicity. America's most wanted did a, 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 a piece on the murder of Ron Rudin. And somebody recognized her. They called the police. The police came, interviewed her. She had, of course, identification of somebody else. The police had a suspicion that she was Margaret Rudin, but the next day they tried to go back there. 
and she went on the lamb again. So she was on the lamb from Phoenix. Then I heard she went to Mexico for a while. When she was in Mexico, I guess she had met someone else who was evading arrest. And she kind of learned some good tips on, you know, kind of how to stay ahead of the cops. She had to reinvent herself to stay ahead of it and in hopes possibly that, you know, that something else would break that would deter them. She has led police through the states of Arizona, Illinois, and Mexico. Um, she came to Revere in December of 1998, according to the Massachusetts State Police. There was a man I had met in Mexico who was only my friend. And uh, he was having hip surgery and two knee surgeries, so he asked me if I'd come to Boston area and uh, help take care of him because he was in a second floor apartment and he needed help. So I told him everything. I said, I want you to know what you might be getting yourself in for. Two weeks ago, Joe Lundergan of Revere made People magazine. Today, he made the People's Court, charged with knowingly giving harbor to a fugitive wanted on the charge of murder. And we have probable cause to believe that he knew that she was wanted in Las Vegas for murder. I said, I am going to eventually be caught. But it was giving me more and more time to deal with all, putting the things in order, putting them in place, checking out things, finding out things I didn't know. And uh, I had some good people helping me in the background. She slipped up. What she did was uh, she liked the grandchildren a lot. And she used to send packages, uh, but she didn't want to send them directly, so she sent them through an intermediary, I believe in St. George, Utah. And the police knew about this, and, and her, her address was on one of the packages, uh, and they knew that she was in Revere, Massachusetts. Margaret Rudin might have looked attractive in any hair color, and she apparently tried them all after she fled from Las Vegas in 1997. She was wearing the black wig when the state police fugitive squad found her in her bathroom Friday night. Margaret Rudin had a propensity for changing her hair colors, her name, she had at least four, and her husband's, of those, she had five. And she's accused of murdering number five, a Las Vegas multimillionaire. When Margaret Rudin was returned to Las Vegas to face murder charges, this was not an airtight case. And so the authorities uh, had repeatedly tendered a plea agreement to her that would have allowed her to plead guilty this and do a minimum amount of time and walk away from it. I talked it over with my mother. She wanted me to take it, and I said, Mom, I'm not, I can't, because I have to admit I'm guilty, and I'm not guilty, so I'm not going to take it. Interestingly, she refused all those offers. Margaret repeatedly told them that she didn't do this and that, uh, you know, she wanted to go before a jury because she felt very strongly that she would be acquitted. If she had a cop to that just for a lesser plea so that she could have been freed, I think that would have stuck in her cross, so to speak, and she might not could have lived with that. She would be looking at roughly two and a half years. I strongly encourage her to take it because God gives you only so many years on this earth. And she said no. She was adamant that she wouldn't do it. They told me, if you will accept it now, you can walk now. And uh, I should have. 
Margaret Rudin had spent almost two years in jail by the time her trial started in 2001. Clark County prosecutors knew their case had some major holes in it, so they repeatedly offered Margaret very generous plea deals in exchange for her confession for the murder of her husband, Ron. Margaret continued to maintain her innocence and refused to cut a deal, opting instead to take her chances at trial. Now we're going to hear opening statements uh, from the counsel, all right? The opening statement on behalf of the state? Yes, Your Honor. Mr. Owens. Now, the purpose of the opening statement is to give you sort of an orientation or framework so that as you see the actual evidence in this case, you'll be able to uh, kind of know where you're at and not get lost. It's really important in a case like this because in this particular case, we're talking about the span of time of nearly 13 years and literally hundreds of pieces of evidence and photograph. Michael Amador was a, a young uh, a district attorney also, and he, he uh, went into private practice. Seemed like a nice young man. I, I knew him as a judge. He appeared in front of me. But something happened to Michael Amador. Uh, it was the worst opening statement that I've ever experienced in my life. Margaret. Tom. Michael. Gentlemen. This is a great day. In a lot of different ways. This is a great day for me. This is uh, a culmination of a career. I'd never been arrested in my life. Not even for a traffic accident or anything. Nothing. Michael Amador came to me. He'd done a lot of homework. He knew what he was talking about when he came in. I didn't think he was so bad as he was, but he probably was the biggest mistake I ever made in my life because I believed him. If you want to know an opinion about me, I guarantee you'll find some. Different from different people. Not many people know me. I could be a, a wonderful, caring father coaching soccer and basketball and helping kids with homework and doing all those things I did with my kids as they were growing up. Uh, I was young, first time I ever When I was a green 25-year-old kid who came here to crush crime and make the world safer democracy, you better believe that's what I thought. It was, by all accounts, probably one of the worst opening statements in the history of courts. And I'm not exaggerating. It was all over the map. It was incoherent. Something was wrong. And repeatedly, Judge Bonaventure had to intervene and, and say, hey, what, what's going on here? What are you talking about? All right, Mr. Amador, I'm, uh, I think I'm on all the time. Uh, th this is really an opening statement. And I, I think that, that I don't know if the DAs want to object or not. They've been very polite, I think. Uh, no one watching that could feel comfortable for Margaret at that point. She didn't realize how bad it was while she was sitting there. But I've watched the video of that opening statement. And what, what pains me is seeing Margaret there. And I've always thought, what must she be thinking? having to witness this. And it's her life that's on the line. It's no one else's. Everyone else got to go do their thing, but she paid the price for this. We've been here for 35 minutes. Uh, you can maybe save that for closing, but uh, uh, the, an opening statement is just like a roadmap to tend to show what the evidence will show. 
And you're really for 35 minutes now. I didn't mind 5, 10, 15 minutes, but I, I would wish uh, in all respect that you would just get to what the evidence, in your opinion, will tend to show, and, uh, and, and we'll move on, all right? I'm obligated as a judge to do that, so. I took it upon myself to uh, call everybody in chambers and say, you know, Mr. Amador, this might be a little above your head here. So let me help you. Let me get some lawyers involved with this. So I had top-notch attorneys appointed at county expense, Tom Patero, uh, John Mamet, to help him out and, and get the case moving. Mr. Rudin disappeared, and then at some point in time, they'd found a skull out in the middle of the desert. And you say you... You find a skull. Tell me actually what it is, how, how you see it, and what happens. Uh, I walked past it. I thought my friends were playing a joke on me, and they said, a, there's a human skull. And uh, I turned around, and they had the flashlight on it, on the skull, and uh, we, we knew that it was a real human skull, and it wasn't a joke. Uh, once you identify that it's a real human skull, what is it that you do? Uh, we go uh, up the trail to uh, Steve's vehicle, uh, drive back to Las Vegas, and... Uh, call Las Vegas Police Department. I was told that there was an area of a burned area and there seemed to be uh, remains of a, a body. So we proceeded to investigate uh, this this scene and approach. First thing we would do is uh, do photography. This is a close-up view of that charred pit. And these long, slender items are metal strips that I recovered from this fire pit. You said that uh, other than the, the metal long pieces, you also um, saw evidence of some other items in there. Yes, there's smaller items. There's pieces of wood, smaller metal pieces. I recovered a um, latch. And there were white charred pieces, what appeared to be burned pieces of bone. In my opinion, Ron Rudin died as a result of multiple gunshot wounds to the head. Then they said that the trunk that the charred remains were found in was a trunk that had come from her antique store. Can you describe the trunk for the jury here? It was approximately, I'll say, three feet across, two and a half feet wide, two and a half feet long. They said a trunk was missing from my shop. I never had a trunk in that shop. Several more people testified there was no trunk in that shot. A diver at Lake Mead found a firearm wrapped in plastic at the bottom of the lake. Forensic examination found that this was, in fact, Ron Rudin's missing weapon. Do you recognize States Exhibit 69? Yes, sir. And how is it that you recognize States Exhibit 69? Um, it's a Ruger handgun, 22 caliber, inside the same bags with the uh, magazine laid next to it, same form as I found it back then. I continued to uh, pursue a, a comparison of those bullets uh, and um, eventually came to the conclusion that the bullets from Ron Rudin were fired from the Ruger pistol, which I had examined um, months before. So it was clear to the police that someone had used this gun to kill Ron, wrapped it in plastic, and disposed of it at the bottom of the lake. And the police were very resolute in saying that there's only two people that would have had access to this gun, Ron and Margaret Rudin. 
And their theory was, obviously, that Margaret uh, uh, had, had killed Ron uh, to, uh, for some financial gain. To stuff him in a trunk, load him in a van or some kind of vehicle, along with the uh, gasoline it would take to burn up his body and to drive him out to Nelson's Landing, unload him, pour all the gas out, burn him up. I mean, it's just inconceivable that Margaret could have done that. This was never about a reward. This was about a man that was dead and that people loved him and he was missing. You know, you didn't know whether to believe him or not, but it was very important testimony because it linked her to the disposal of evidence. After delivering a disastrous opening statement, Margaret Rudin's defense team, led by Michael Amador, are in the unfortunate position of having to win back the jury. And although there is no hard evidence linking Margaret to the murder of her husband, Ron, the prosecution believes they have enough witnesses to build a circumstantial case that will convince jurors to convict. Now, what was the condition of the carpet in the 9 by 12 area? that uh, you were now going to cut out? <clears throat> well, in this area, on this side, when I started cutting through it, it was hard. It was reported from uh, a young man, Augustine uh, Lovato, that right after Ron was missing, she hired him to do some remodeling. She wanted to remodel the bedroom into an office. There was like something had been spilt in that area or something, it was hard. And there was like a dark brown hard substance of what I cut through with the utility knife. Stuff was flicking off it and, and spraying me on my face or sticking to my skin. Augustine Lovato, he was kind of this nebulous guy who, he didn't know what to make of him. You know, you didn't know whether to believe him or not, but it was very important testimony because it linked her to the disposal of evidence. That's just preposterous, number one. So this whole thing astonishes me. He saw an ad in the paper offering $25,000 reward, and then to come in and say, hey, I saw red liquid bubbling up from the drain. I saw this crusty blood-stained carpets after the detectives had been in there looking at it. So uh, th that's the kind of credibility issues that we would have in this case. This was never about a reward. This was about a man that was dead and that people loved him and he was missing. Well, the fact is that you and your mother were living in an apartment that didn't even have furniture, correct? Correct. You people were broke, correct? Correct, that's why I was You were desperate for money, correct? Judge, if you can answer the question, please, I object. Yeah, uh, please, let the witness answer. The trustees put up the reward, and then this so-called handyman who said he was in the house and saw and did all of this, he's the one that collected the 25,000. The trustees end up paying him. Showtime. You would just come over here, Mr. Marmot. And uh, right now, I'm going to shoot you. Whited years. <laughs> the state's theory was that he was killed in that bet. And uh, we did not believe that that was a sustainable theory. The shooter would have to be directly over on top of it. So now the shooter is going to be up here, shooting three shots in the back of the head. Well, yeah, I, I think so, because if that blood came from from the entry wounds in, in, the, in the back of the head, then they have to come there directly. They're, they're not going to take a circuitous route. These wounds are here. It's going to be coming this way. you got to get it so it's perpendicular. 
Dr. Thornton. Could you move his head more? Council's leading. Uh, he's yeah, running the whole demonstration. Well, Your Honor, to get to the demonstration, I didn't have to do that. Well, I don't think you do. Don't lead the witness. You could do it some other way. Just ask him how it could be done. Don't, right. don't lead him. The district attorney's office uh, vehemently objected to this because the lawyers were getting on it, jumping on the bed, and saying, see, ladies and gentlemen, jury, it couldn't happen this way. Well, they're testifying, and you can't do that. I agreed with the state. Eventually, I uh, excluded the bedroom set, didn't allow him to use it in front of the jury. I would uh, move for a mistrial on her behalf. Uh, we haven't talked to enough people, and even the best investigators in the state simply don't have enough time in the day to get completely prepared. If the court grants my motion, I will also be moving to withdraw as attorney of record on behalf of Margaret Rudin. A lot of people felt he should have got a mistrial. You know, that this thing had spiraled off the, off the rails, so to speak. People were questioning whether Margaret was getting an adequate defense. State your full name for the record. Eugene Warner. You also go by the name of Yehuda Sharon? Yes, I do. And have you, in fact, gone by the name Yehuda Sharon uh, in depositions associated with this case? Yes, I did. Yehuda Sharon was a very close friend of Margaret's. He's a former Israeli intelligence officer. And as the police investigation focused in on Margaret, the police started to suspect that Margaret and Yehuda were having an affair. Were you, were you ever romantically involved with Margaret Rudin? No, I was not. Why did you help her? Because I basically was trying to help myself getting out of the situation. Basically, I find myself confronting the police when the police lie and the police give false information to newspaper and to other media. And it just happened that in that circumstances, Margaret Wooden and I were in the same, the same boat. So helping myself, Naturally, it helped her. So the police came up with this theory, never proven, that Yehuda had helped Margaret dispose of the body. Did you kill Ron Rudin? No, I did not. Did you help kill Ron Rudin? No, I did not. Did you help dispose of his body? No, I did, did not. Did you go up to Nelson's Landing in December of 1994? No, I did in not. In any kind of car? I did not. And the one person they thought was in cahoots with her was Yehuda Sharon. He went to court and the grand jury and then later the trial and said he wasn't going to testify. Uh, the DA's office went and got an order from the judge giving him immunity, which meant that Yehuda Sharon could have admitted to everything if he was involved and would have walked away a free man. And he walked in there and said, I don't know anything about any murder. I wasn't involved in any murder. So, I mean, that was as close as they ever came to finding a partner. Ms. Cantrell, you are the sister <laughs> of Margaret Rudin, is that correct? Yes, I am. Her sister gave damning testimony, but they had a a damned relationship from small children. Now, do you and Margaret talk about what uh, has now transpired between she and Detective Janice? Yes. And what is it that Margaret says? She said, you know how you will tell what you know if you're not careful? And I said, yes. And she said, that's why I made a point of going back over to the, to the detective, because I had caught myself talking about him in the past tense to the detective earlier. And when she now tells you about catching herself talking about the past tense versus present tense, what is it that you say? I said, I hope that doesn't mean that you know something. And what did Margaret respond? <clears throat> she said, I don't give 
Margaret Rudin's excruciating six-week trial was marked by mistakes and mayhem. She asked for and was denied a mistrial due to the poor representation provided to her by her attorney, Michael Amador. Margaret's fate rests in the hands of the jury, who have to decide whether circumstantial evidence the state has presented is proof of her guilt. There are facts and circumstances that link Margaret Rudin to Ron Rudin's violence, death. The facts and circumstances also would indicate that someone had to have malice for Ron. Someone had to really dislike Ron in order to shoot him four times. Donna talked to Margaret about the fact, well, gee, if Ron's so difficult, if it's so terrible at home, I thought you were going to divorce him. She said to me, he's not in good health. He can't even walk without being out of breath. And I think I'll wait. Wait for what? Wait for him to die? Did Margaret grow impatient? I would submit to you that she did. This is not an easy trial for anyone uh, that was involved in it, but especially it wasn't easy for Margaret Rudin. Once again, the attorneys go home, the judges go home. The question is, does the, does the defendant go home with you? We have a dilemma. A dilemma of truth and a dilemma of proof, a dilemma of facts and a dilemma of evidence. Because if, in fact, that was where this horrific deed took place, within three days, a member of the Las Vegas Metropolitan Police Department was in that room searching it with the consent of Margaret Rudin. And he did not see any of the things that the state has told you over and over must have been there. Margaret Rudin is not guilty because the evidence says it. Uh, my gut told me she was going to be convicted. This was a case where she didn't do herself any favors by fleeing. And that created a lot of suspicion in the eyes of the public and I also think in the eyes of the jury. All right, uh, have you selected a four-person? Who's the four-person? Would you please stand up, sir? Ms. Rudin, will you stand up, please? Have you arrived at a verdict? Yes, sir, we have. Hand the verdicts to the bailiff. Please read the verdict aloud, starting from the very top on down. As to count one, murder with the use of a deadly weapon, we find the defendant guilty. <laughs> dated, signed? It is dated the second day of May, 2001. And those fateful words that he used in his opening, this is the greatest day of my life, came back to haunt us in that jury verdict when the foreman, after the guilty verdict, I believe he used that same uh, phrase when he spoke to the media. I submit to you that today, May the 2nd, two months later, that this is a great day. Ronald Rudin, his family, and the people of the great state of Nevada can comfort in the fact that justice was served today. The focus should have been on Margaret Rudin and her defense, and unfortunately, at times, uh, it got lost. The trial itself was very convoluted, you know? I mean, it was difficult for anyone to follow. And 
So it was very difficult for them to pull together a defense. I think that because of the particular problem in the interaction between uh, one of the attorneys, my attorneys, and uh, the judge, that that was another complication and a problem. As for Mr. Rudin and your marriage to him, I only hope that these words of Robert Ingersoll pacify his pain and the, the people that love Ron Rudin. I would rather live in love where death is king than have eternal life where love is not. In my opinion now, knowing all I know, I did not get a fair trial. Many things were covered up. The truth is, even in trial, some of the things that were very, very vital, the judge just shushed it away. You know, it didn't have importance to him. Regardless of your claims to the contrary, the jury has spoken and has found you guilty of first-degree murder. Therefore, taking into consideration the Department of Parole and Probation pre-sentence report, the court sentences you to life imprisonment in the Nevada Department of Corrections with the possibility of parole. You will not be eligible until you have served at least 20 years. The truth is, I didn't kill him. I don't think anybody knows the truth of Ron's death. Nobody's tried to really find that part out. She maintained her innocence the whole time, even after she was convicted and doing time in Florence McClure Women's Correctional Facility. She had done about five years. And they basically told her, if you'll just change your plea, we will release you with time served and you will be out of here. You can go. She told him no. She says, I'm innocent. I'm going to prove I'm innocent. I didn't do it. You know, your mind starts saying, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. How could this have happened? I didn't, you know? And especially when everybody was saying the state did not present a case against you. And then to find that they did, or the 12 people believe they did, that was, I think, a point when you're disbelieving and you're numb. You're just totally numb. If it wasn't for bad luck, Margaret Rudin wouldn't have any. I believe anything that happened broke against her, and that, 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 that's, that to me, just as a person, isn't fair. I interviewed her the day she was released from prison. She's on parole, but she's stuck to the same story. It was 20 years later, and she had stuck to the same story. The joy of being released from prison is tempered by the fact that Margaret Rudin is innocent, and she did not murder her husband, Ron Rudin. I think it's important to clear her name, and it's also important uh, for people to know the justice system does fail. This could happen to anybody. I don't want to clear my name for myself. I want to do it for my family. They still believe in me. That's what I want people to listen, investigate if need be, study the system a little bit, and help change it. After serving out her 20-year sentence, Margaret Rudin was released from Florence McClure Correctional Center on January 10th, 2020. Although she is a free woman, Margaret and her attorney, Greg Mullinex, are determined to get a new trial and clear her name. I'm Tamron Hall. Thank you for watching Someone They Knew.
There you have it, another episode of the Court TV original production, Someone They Knew with Tamron Hall. If you want to see this episode and more, check the show notes for a link. And you can see me on my show, Closing Arguments, weeknights at 8 p.m. Eastern, where we look at the biggest current cases from across the country. That's it for this week. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading. And as always, please don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.